welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Samuel Remini. Sam is an associate fellow at RUSI here in London. A geopolitical analyst and commentator, he's a regular contributor to the Washington Post, Al Monitor, Foreign Policy, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I'm pleased to say a regular on our Arab Digest podcast. Sam's book titled Putin's War on Ukraine will be published by Hearst and OUP and is due for release in December. Our conversation today is about Russia in Syria. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Bill, for inviting me back. Great to have you back. Um, You tweeted recently about the possibility of Syria recognizing the so-called republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in the contested Donbass region of Ukraine. Do you think that'll happen? And and what does Bashar al-Assad gain from such a move? So to provide a bit of context on that statement, uh, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushilin, claimed that Syria would likely recognize Luhansk People's Republic uh, in, in the near future. So it was not really a discussion about recognizing both of them. It was more of a discussion about the recognition of Luhansk. And that isn't that much of a surprise because Syria has, of course, accepted and embraced a lot of Russia's creations of artificial states in the post-Soviet space in the past. For example, Syria, perhaps along with Nicaragua, was one of the first few countries to support Russia's uh, recognition of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, the two autonomous regions of Georgia, as independent, and uh, also were sympathetic towards Russia's uh, military involvement in South Ossetia during the Georgian War. They also established uh, ties with, uh, or or were sympathetic to the uh, Russian annexation of Crimea and have established ties with the new administration in Crimea that was imposed after 2014. So this is really a continuity of Syrian foreign policy and it would not be a surprise if Russia, if Syria did take that move. From a more of a strategic and economic standpoint, this has several implications. Number one, it shows that the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics are not necessarily just uh, Russian proto-states that have no international recognition and legitimacy. Already, there's been the capturing of the two British foreign fighters, right, and, uh, and who've been given the death sentence in Donetsk. And you're seeing the Russian foreign ministry ask Britain to negotiate directly with Bushilin and the Donetsk People's Republic on their behalf. So this is something that uh, if Syria or at least another country were to recognize them aside from Russia, that would add to Russia's case that these republics have a degree of international legitimacy are not just Russian artificial constructs. The second thing is that the Russians have been using these separatist republics to engage with uh, various uh, enclaves, mainly separatist enclaves, where they have strategic interests. For example, Denis Bushilin did a highly high-profile interview in Ruda. For, which is the Iraqi Kurdish uh, connection, where he expressed sympathy for potential Iraqi Kurdish independence. And he's acting as a, well, yet another surrogate in Russia's relationship with Iraqi Kurdistan. So this will allow these separatist republics to engage with uh, Russian aligned figures like Assad, as well as separatist enclaves across the region. And obviously, this is a positive step from their point of view. Thirdly, well, go ahead, uh, sorry. I would say with regards to uh, food security, that would be a significant thing. Now, the Russians are basically using uh, the notion that they are not part of the problem with regards to food security, but they're part of the solution. That's Western sanctions that are causing the problem. So the, uh, the Luhansk People's Republic has got integration now with Kurzon, which has also joined Russia, and Kurzon's got a lot of agricultural stocks. So this will allow for the easy movement of grain from Ukraine to be sent through Russia to Syria, and Syria will get agricultural support. So Russia will be able to use wheat as a diplomatic tool and show that it's allowing its closest allies and partners on the continent to gain a, a degree of like a, access to food. 
So that's the other uh, scenario and the other thing that's important here. And that really is, is a big gain uh, for Bashar al-Assad because of the whole food insecurity situation and, and the difficulties that Syria has had uh, with drought and uh, rising food prices. So yeah, thank you. That, that, that clarifies because otherwise it, it, it seemed perhaps a situation that might further ostracize Assad, but in fact, he's got um, quite a lot to gain from it. Now, there are persistent reports that Putin is withdrawing troops from Syria to shore up his, his war efforts in Ukraine. How damaging is that to Bashar al-Assad? Um, I think that it, we have to look at those reports with a degree of a grain of salt, because there's been lots of discussions in the past about Russia withdrawing from Syria, particularly since the start of this war, or even more significantly, the movement of Syrian foreign fighters part of the 14,000 foreign fighters from the Middle East that Vladimir Putin targeted to bring in. And those reports have often been thinly sourced and have often been uh, exaggerated. So it is possible that Russia is uh, potentially uh, withdrawing some experienced personnel from Syria to fight in Ukraine. It did withdraw Wagner Group personnel, for example, from other theaters of operation like Central African Republic and brought them to the Ukrainian theater. And of course, Dvornikov, who's the head commander in Ukraine right now, obviously had made, carved out his reputation as a military commander in Syria. So he has cohesion with many of the key units there. And he also has experience working with the Syrian 5th Brigade, which uh, serves a very similar kind of role as a, as a proxy or a Ken fodder proxy, if you will, to what the uh, separatist militias in Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics are serving in eastern Ukraine today. So experience that Dvornikov has in Syria working with proxies, as well as working with Russian forces on the Syrian theater, could tempt Russia to withdraw significant amounts of forces from Syria to fight in the Ukraine conflict. But there's little evidence that Russia has made an overwhelming drawdown or has really brought foreign fighters into the mix, even though the Ukrainians have reported that Syrian and Libyan foreign fighters have died. The uh, Assad regime has been mum about the idea of Syrians moving in. And Khalifa Haftar and the uh, LNA denied outright that Libyans were there. So this is a possible thing that's happened, but it's important that we keep these reports uh, with a lot of skepticism at this time. Well, if it is happening, even if it's only to a, a limited extent, because after all, the war is draining the Russian military quite severely. But, but let's pursue the thought that, that it, it, it could be happening. Do you think Iran would be in a position to capitalize in any way on this? Iran is uh, in a position to uh, probably capitalize on this to some extent. They would definitely be able to consolidate uh, their positions in, in Syria beyond southern uh, Syria. They would be able to also integrate more closely with wings of the Syrian intelligence services that have traditionally been more uh, pro-Russian. So they'd be able to quash out some of the voices inside the Syrian establishment who are supportive of security sector reform, which is something that the Russians have advocated and the Iranians have been a lot more skeptical of because they fear it to be destabilizing. So I think you could remake some of the local partnerships within the intelligence establishment inside Syria and it could also increase uh, Iran's uh, presence outside of uh, southern Syria. But I think that in general, the Russians, and the Iranians have learned how to coexist in their respective spheres inside Syria to a greater extent than they had a few years ago. And right now, I think it's almost unthinkable that a Russian official would make a kind of statement like Sergei Lavrov made in 2018, where he was talking about Iranian influence in Syria being something of a concern. I think they've learned to live together in a different way. Also, the Russians are unlikely to take their forces out of Tartus, which is the key supply base, or to the bases that they're actively trying to expand as the Ukraine war is going on, like Khmeimim. So those base modernizations are going ahead to plan. 
They still have their forces there. They still have their areas there. Also, Syria is such an important supply route for Russian Wagner forces inside Libya, as well as even increasingly for the smuggling of agricultural products from Turkey via Syria to other parts of the global south. And uh, it said that I don't think the Russians are going to withdraw from their core positions in Latakia and other places. So Iran's scope for territorial reach and influence uh, at Russia's expense is quite limited, but they would gain advantage, I think, in the terms of their alignments within the intelligence services, and also, I think, more potentially, have greater interest in the reconstruction sphere. Because if Russia is under crippling international sanctions and Iran finds itself eventually getting itself to some kind of revised JCPOA and alleviates those sanctions, Iran will be able to get those kind of preferential contracts in the petrochemical sector, in the oil sector, in the construction sector, that it was losing out to Russian companies in those provisional deals that were signed before the Caesar Act of 2019. So we're talking mostly the yeah, around the period between uh, 2016 to 2019. The Iranians were losing out on provisional contracts with the Syrian authorities to the Russians. And now they may be able to get those contracts and get a leg up in the reconstruction. So that's another area to watch for. You, you mentioned the Wagner Group. and uh, uh, What is their status in Syria now? So the Wagner Group, uh, status in Syria is a bit ambiguous. Obviously, we haven't seen that much evidence of them playing as exceptional frontline role in uh, military operations on the ground like they were during the early offensives, for example, in Palmyra. It seems as if after 2016, they uh, moved in two different directions. They became a, Wagner Group became a global entity. The number of forces increased from 1,000 people to 6,000 people. They moved to Africa. They moved elsewhere. Uh, and also the Wagner Group also struck individual deals with the Syrian government. Sometimes it occurred outside the auspices of the, uh, the, the, the Russian defense ministry. So they cut individual deals with the Zadinist people, uh, acting more in a logistical and guardianship and training capacity. So I think that their main role in Syria right now is as a force multiplier, logistical and training, not so much taking the frontline lead in terms of offensive operations like they did in, in the past. And uh, they, I mean, they, they, that is not that significant a part of the equation. But what the Wagner Group has experience doing is recruiting pro-government Syrians to fight in foreign theaters. We've seen them recruit them in large numbers to fight in Libya. And that recruitment capacity could help bring Syrian foreign fighters, as well as Syrians in Libya, over to the Ukrainian front. I think that that's the dimension of the water group's involvement in Syria that we should pay the closest attention to. Mm, okay. Um, what about the Turks uh, and, and uh, the Russians in Syria? Again, if Russian influence is perhaps waning a little bit, is there an opportunity there for uh, Turkey to come to some uh, better position or are they pretty comfortable with where they are with uh, the Russians in Syria right now? Yeah, well, Turkey obviously has been uh, being quite bellicose with regards to the Kurdish issue over the past several months. They've announced a military operation in Iraqi Kurdish, in, in, in Iraq to cleanse up the PKK. It's had uh, the, some strikes happening. It's not as intense a military operation as the short burst military operations like Operation Olive Branch in Syria was, or Operation Peace Spring was in 2018 and 2019, but it's an ongoing military operation. There are also persistent saber-rattling from Erdogan and also warnings that Turkey could launch a new military offensive inside northern Syria to uh, deal with the uh, Kurdish issue there. So that's, uh, those are the two dimensions that we should be watching for. One thing that I think is interesting to note was that over the past month, several disparate Syrian groups and battalions have actually increased coordination against a possible Turkish invasion. That includes not just the People's Protection Unit, the so YPG from the Kurdish side, but also 
Iranian-backed militia groups like Fatih Mayun, as well, which is affiliated with the Lebanese uh, Shiite Hezbollah movement, and Iranian-backed groups in the towns of uh, Nubal and Zarah. So there's various brigades that are being formed, and some of those brigades are actually integrating more closely with the uh, Syrian army and the Syrian regime's paramilitaries as well. So we're seeing Syrian regime, we're seeing uh, uh, Iranian-backed assets, and we're seeing Kurdish assets all fighting together in some kind of a coalition to preempt a potential uh, Turkish uh, intervention. We're seeing this actually all be taking place in uh, a joint operations room. It's called North Thunderbolt. And it's located right inside a Russian base in the outskirts of Aleppo. So all this is happening. Again, this is a lot of this is based on you know, anonymous sources. A lot of it's based on uh, people not talking uh, with attribution. So we have to take some of these reports with a grain of salt. But they have been reported in our monitor and Iraqi outlets in other uh, Syrian Turkish outlets. So there's, there's some discussions about this that's interesting to watch. So even if Turkey were to intervene in Syria with a larger offensive, that might not necessarily be a bad thing for Russia. In fact, it might actually bring the Assad regime and the Kurds closer together and help Russia achieve that kind of degree of unity and cohesion that's been working towards ever since they struck that informal deal in 2019 during the first intervention. So we shouldn't view a Turkish military intervention in Syria as an unqualifiedly bad thing for Russia's political objectives, which is to unite Syria under Assad's control, be willing to create a federal state or a more decentralized structure. And also, we should keep in mind that the Russian-Turkish relationship inside Syria has been operating as normal ever since. The first uh, use of the Z symbol, actually outside of Ukraine, were on tanks that were being held in joint patrols with the Turks inside, on the outskirts of Idlib. And those patrols have been occurring on a regular basis. The only thing the Turks have done to justify or jeopardize Russian interests was to cut off Russian airspace and Russian uh, flight movements to Syria. But even then, they can fly around Iraq, they can fly around Iran, they have other flight paths. And the Russian media was doing that mostly as a symbolic gesture. So that's why the Russians are not too worried about Turkish uh, military uh, interventionism, either in Syria or in Iraq. They're just pointing to the double standards. They're saying that, okay, Turkey intervenes in Syria and Iraq. And the West is fine with it, and they're part of NATO. And now they're getting arms embargoes lifted to get Sweden and Finland into NATO potentially. Whereas we invade Ukraine on security grounds of creating a buffer with a hostile alliance, and we get uh, sanctioned to the hilt and treated like a pariah. So the Russians are fighting an information war about what's happening with regards to Turkey and Syria. But geopolitically, I don't think they're that concerned, and they may even see some benefits from Turkish assertiveness, ironically. What about Israel? Uh, the Israelis recently carried out a raid on Damascus International Airport. Can you tell our listeners what's behind that attack and, and how significant is it? Okay, so the Israeli attack on Damascus International Airport is really not surprising, right? Because the Israelis have historically argued that Damascus Airport is a major uh, den for the smuggling of Iranian weapons and even the smuggling of personnel and troops, right? And Israel aggressively lobbied the United States and Europe to sanction uh, Mahan Airline which is the private uh, Iranian carrier that was operating through that airport and moving people and personnel to support IRGC activities. And they achieved that. So the Israelis have been looking at Damascus airport and the fights that come from it as a major security threat for some time. But the only thing that's interesting about this attack is the damage to the uh, civilian uh, area, the civilian annex of the airport. That's what surprised me was that they targeted that. And it basically led to flights being diverted to Aleppo and the grounding of flights, actually disrupting the flight paths in such a significant way is, uh, is really quite unprecedented as an operation. 
So it's not the strike in the airport itself. It's the nature of the strike. That was curious and that was interesting for me. I think that there's a lot of discussions that the Israelis are concerned, obviously, about the Russian withdrawal from Syria and the Iranians having an increasingly important uh, role in, a, in the security standpoint uh, over there. So they want to kind of curb illegal arms trafficking and movement as much as possible. And also there's a rumor that the Russians actually gave the Israelis a green light to attack this kind of airport from a coordinated way. The uh, S-300s, uh, for example, in and around the area do not really do much to or do anything to stop the Israeli strikes. So yeah, there's uh, the, only, the only significance is the annex was targeted and also the possibility that Russia would allow and sanction uh, Israel to, to, to engage in such a, a, an interesting attack on that airport. And, and these were, we should say, these were missile attacks, weren't they? They weren't uh, uh, strafings by fighter jets. Exactly, yeah, they were missile attacks that were being used to uh, attack this. And uh, it also uh, just uh, points to the fact that there's a general tendency of saber rattling between the Israelis and the Iranians that goes up as the GCPOA continues to stall. We're seeing Naftali Bennett in general engage in more uh, bellicose rhetoric towards the Iranians at, at the present time. So all of this kind of fits together into a broader trend of what we're seeing geopolitically. Hmm. Now, now, what about Hezbollah? You mentioned Hezbollah, but again, they're a big player uh, in, in the Syrian theater. They suffered an electoral setback in the recent Lebanese parliamentary elections. Will that affect their operations in Syria? And, and what are the challenges are they facing in Syria? I think that the election problems for Hezbollah are not necessarily that much of a problem for the Syrian campaign in general. First of all, it's, it's more of a significant thing for the uh, coalition building inside Lebanese politics. So they, it's more that they now have to maybe work with the uh, Druze leader, for example, Bali Jumblat, who has a block of now nine MPs and those parliamentarians are now decisive in holding the balance of power. That's more uh, of an issue that we're having to see over here. The uh, Hezbollah now has also lost some of its cross-sectarian alignments so some of the Sunnis or some of the non-Shiites who were kind of aligned with them are now kind of uh, being squeezed out of the parliament. And some of those non-Shiites were interlocutors with the Assad regime in Syria. And some of the few cross-sectarian partnerships that the Assad regime has inside Lebanon. So it, it does affect some of their cross-sectarian partnerships. It does create some problematic uh, power brokering uh, concerns internally. But I don't think it really affects that much in terms of their military operations in Syria, which are basically have been continuing as planned. The, uh, those operations, I mean, how seriously worried are the Israelis about Hezbollah? So I think that the uh, Israelis are much more concerned, I think, in general, about IRGC activity coming out of Syria and arms trafficking and movement. I think that they're, in general, not so concerned about uh, the escalation with Hezbollah at this time. Though they uh, did fire, obviously, uh, uh, missiles at a Hezbollah drone that entered Israeli territory on the 19th of February. And uh, they had, there has been some persistent saber rattling inside the Israeli media about the uh, possibility of a conflict uh, with Hezbollah. Ufin Hassan Nasrallah uh, kind of warned that, you know, that there's a maritime dispute that's breaking up between Israel and Lebanon. And if Israel launches aggression against the Lebanese waterways or Lebanese maritime capabilities, Hezbollah will attack. So there's drills, there's saber rattling, there's concerns about the maritime issue, there's provocative gestures on all sides. But will this lead to an actual all-out conflict? I mean, in terms of the actual Hezbollah-Israel battlefield, it hasn't been showing a major sign of a, a significant escalation, I think, uh, in recent weeks. So we should watch for that. We should also watch, however, for 
uh, potential uh, triggers that could happen. We're seeing uh, Israeli special forces, for example, heading towards Cyprus to train for a fight against Hezbollah. So those special forces and Israeli training feels like it's gotten up to par. They might want to launch a preemptive strike. Also, the Karish gas rig has been created. And if Hezbollah launched an attack on that gas rig, then the Israelis might strike to defend it. So there's a few scenarios in which Israel might feel it has the confidence to launch a preemptive strike against Hezbollah that's more successful than the war they got in 2006, or an imminent threat scenario that would encourage Israel to respond and retaliate. But in general, I think it's largely a lot of symbolism and saber like on both sides between Israel and Hezbollah. I'm not so concerned about an immediate open conflict. And of course, the Israeli uh, voters are yet again going to have to go back to the polls. I would think that uh, at this point, Israel would not be interested in upping the uh, the heat on Hezbollah. Yeah, probably not. I, mean, I don't think it would be a good idea to do that right during an election period. I mean, if the war were to go extremely well, then they would uh, be able to, uh, maybe it would be electorally beneficial. But if there's any of the problems he had in 2006, it would probably be a no-go zone. Yeah, that um, that 2006 bloody nose that Hezbollah inflicted on the Israelis stays very large in the Israeli uh, landscape. I think in the thinking of the Israeli, the IDF, and and, yeah. and the politicians. Let me ask you about um, the Gulf states, uh, the UAE in particular, but but other states that are bringing Assad in from the cold. The Bahraini ambassador was greeted by Assad just a just a few days ago, taking up his appointment. Is there uh, a danger that that process of normalization would somehow be knocked off course by what's happening with the Russian uh, potential diminishment of their influence in Syria? Or do you see that that simply continuing and and indeed gathering speed? Well, I think that uh, I would be too worried about a major disruption in terms of, at least from Assad's point of view, he shouldn't be too worried about a major disruption of these normalization processes, uh, regardless of what's happening geopolitically. So uh, the Emirati normalization with Syria, for example, has been something that's been taking root for a long time. The uh, Emiratis always had a back channel towards the Syrian regime, even when they were arming the rebels. They were always more cautious, and even as early as 20, 2012 to 2014, when the peak of Qatari financial assistance to the Syrian rebels. Qatar jumped in uh, very early, arming the rebels. The Emiratis were always more concerned about arming potential extremists in Syria. And they always had a bit of a back channel with Assad. The Assad family obviously had connections to Dubai. There's a lot of discussions about Syrian assets being held there. And then uh, in 2016, you had the uh, Emiratis openly start calling for Syria's reincorporation into the uh, Arab fold. Discussions about the Arab League being uh, expulsion, even being a mistake, being reconsidered. And that's just built in the years that have followed. So the opening of the embassy in Damascus in 2018, the uh, increased coordination between the Emiratis and the Russians, including on uh, dialogue at the security level between uh, Sheikh Tanun and Patrushev about potential counterterrorism targets that began in 2019. Mohammed bin Zayed's dialogue with Syria right during the early stages of the COVID pandemic. Now now visits uh, of, of Bashar al-Assad to the UAE. Emiratis engaging with the, uh, the Syrian regime at very high, very high levels. Same thing going with Bahrain. Bahrain is acting as a de facto conduit also for Saudi uh, interactions with Syria. And the uh, Bahraini position started turning shortly after the Emirati position in Syria's favor. So I think that, you know, uh, it may still be a bit of time before the Saudis or the Qataris, in particular the Qataris, actually make their normalization of, uh, with Syria known. 
but the existing normalizations that we're seeing with the Emiratis and the Bahrainis won't probably change. The big question is, what will happen with the Caesar Act? What will happen with those uh, sanctions that are being imposed? And if Syria has uh, reconstruction needs that are less dependent on Russia, but then now overwhelmingly dependent on, on Iran, the maybe even in the West interest to somehow open up uh, the scope for non-Iranian uh, investment, which that might mean lead to China entering the mix, but it also might lead to the Gulf monarchies entering the mix and reducing and diluting Iranian and Russian influence in Syria in the long run. So the Emiratis will probably try to make that case that if you let us invest in Syria, we will reduce the influence of Russia and Iran. And I think that the it's unclear whether that but that will resonate amongst American policymakers. Abdullah bin Zayed, when he met with the Russians uh, last year, condemned the Caesar Act and took the Russian position against unilateral sanctions. Now, ironically, it might be he might be using that position as a way to kind of uh, position the Emirates as a third party counterweight to the Russians and the Iranians instead of supporting Russian interests against Iran. So we'll see how all that unfolds. That's the variable that I think we should be looking at. And just remind us, uh, Sam, uh, what the Caesar Act is. The Caesar Act are a set of sanctions that were imposed by the United States, imposed by the Trump administration. They're aimed at punishing war crimes violators inside Syria. But de facto, what they've done is prevented any major investments in Syria, either pledged or actualized, really since 2019. That, yeah, it's basically a, a long-term embargo on the Syrian leadership, which in turn acts as a bulwark against reconstruction of Syria more generally, because unfortunately, the only authority in Syria is the Assad regime, as heinous as it is, there's really not many other people that can be dealt with in the reconstruction sphere. Well, now, you've mentioned the JCPOA. Maybe that's the elephant in the room, Sam. Talks in Vienna remain stalled. I wonder, I'm going to ask you three questions, and you can, you can answer them in turn. Is the deal effectively on life support? That's the first question. Who in the MENA region wants to see the plug pulled? Question two. And is it in Vladimir Putin's? interest to keep the deal alive? So I would say that to answer your first question, I would say that the deal is that I wouldn't say it's necessarily on life support, but I'd say that there is a lot of obstacles towards uh, making a breakthrough over here. We're seeing Iran move towards 60% uranium. We're seeing the Iranians even allegedly remove cameras of the uh, nuclear facilities that the West would want to be looking at. So those are provocative gestures that the West is receiving poorly. We're seeing, uh, in general, the Americans and the Europeans uh, uh, emphasize that this is all Iranian obstructionism. The Iranians would point out, saying that this was originally a nuclear agreement, and uh, Trump-era measures like putting the RGC under international sanctions and labeling it as a terrorist group should be uh, removed uh, alongside it. But the Biden administration generally seems inclined to keeping the RGC as a terrorist group. So... The West will say it's all Iranian obstructionism. I think they have a very legitimate set of points when it comes to Iran's illicit uranium enrichment and also some of Iran's uh, obstructions of inspections. But Iran, if you strip away the normative and strip away some of the policy aspects of it and focus just on the legal strictures of the 2015 agreement, might have a case to make that the Americans are still trying to add other caveats and loopholes that shouldn't be added. So that's really where the impasse is and that's really where the problem is. I don't really see either side showing major signs towards uh, making a breakthrough anytime soon. We're seeing the Iranians and sometimes the Russians and the Chinese expressing optimism about the progress of the deal, whereas everyone else expressing uh, pessimism. And uh, with regards to the Middle Eastern actors that would stand to see a deal like the scuppered, obviously the uh, Israelis are concerned about what this deal might mean for Iranian influence inside the region. 
And uh, this will lay, almost certainly lead to stronger coordination between Israel and the Gulf monarchies, maybe new normalizations, new Abraham Accords. I mean, Saudi Arabia is unlikely to normalize with Israel as long as King Solomon is alive. But in the security sphere, it might de facto normalize to a greater extent than we've already seen. There are already a lot of dialogue happening at the bilateral level between different countries worried about this deal. So Jordan and Saudi Arabia just yesterday talking about dealing with uh, the potential expansion of Iranian influence. So there'll be a lot of these bilateral, trilateral, and even multilateral informal and formal formats that'll be popping up between countries that are concerned about what taking Iran out of the box might mean for regional security. So that's what we should really watch for. And that's what we should pay attention to. With respect to Russia's position on the Iran nuclear issue, that's a very interesting uh, question. I would say that the Russians were, and if not uh, disappointed, they did not get full, full-hearted support from the Iranians for their war in Ukraine. The Supreme Leader expressed sympathy, for example, with uh, NATO uh, uh, expansion being the cause of it, NATO aggression being the cause of the war. But the Iranian media and the Iranian information sphere is divided. Of course, there's a lot of Iranians who are concerned about potential separatism. And they see the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic's recognition as a red flag for potential Azeris and Kurds inside northern Iran. They're concerned about the balkanization and federalization of Iranian territory. So that aspect of it led to some backlash with the Iranians. So the Russians felt that maybe they didn't get a full level of support from the Iranians on this. So even if the Iranians did not side with them explicitly in the UN resolution condemning the war, but were sympathetic towards keeping them on the Human Rights Council when they were being kicked off. So they did some things, but they weren't going far enough. Also, there were a few other complications here. The Iranians are working with the Russians on helping them violate sanctions. And the Russians are taking lessons and cues from them. But the Russians were also equally concerned that uh, if Iran were to get the sanctions lifted off of them, that kind of sanctions-based uh, sanctions solidarity will wane and will be removed. So they, they have some interest in keeping Iran reined in because the two countries' cooperation might be maximized by having both countries under sanctions and learning how to develop new techniques to trade with each other and evade the West and fight the kind of Western unilateralism together. Yeah, that's an important part of their partnership. So this is a degree of their partnership that ironically depends on the sanctions staying, uh, which was not the case uh, before the Ukraine war, where lifting uh, air, air sanctions on Iran would lead to Russia being able to really actualize the arms embargo being lifted and sell us 400 other technology to the Iranians and also use Iran as a, as a center point in regional projects like the North-South Transit Corridor. So before the Ukraine war, Sanctions uh, removal was a universally good thing, I think, for the Russians. Now it's more questionable. There's add the concerns that we're seeing as countries divest from Russian oil and you know, the potential beneficiaries of Iranian oil and gas uh, moving in. So obviously the Iranian oil and gas industry is being crowded out to some degree, even if the Iranian officials deny it, by cheap Russian gas entering China. But a lifting of sanctions on Iran would allow them to kind of step in into the Western markets alongside Algeria, Qatar, other countries. And and the third point of problem, which I think has been resolved a little bit, is Sergey Lavrov's concern about how uh, the fact that trade between Russia and Iran, uh, as per allowed by the JCPOA, might be obstructed by secondary sanctions. It seems as if the Russians feel they've got guarantees from the West and secondary sanctions won't apply to their trade with Iran. And they're moving ahead with uh, the deal accordingly. And they're saying they're supporting it. But that is also something else to come forward if the Americans actually show they're serious about applying secondary sanctions. So far, they've used a lot of threats, but they haven't actually applied them in a major way to uh, countries that are buying goods from Russia. So we have to see the credibility of the secondary sanctions risk. So that's the, the overall lay of the land over here. It's a very difficult path to JCPOA, but there could be new regional alignments. I think the Russia 
uh, issue. Russia wants to deal to come back, but it's got a lot of legitimate concerns they may not have had in 2015. Fascinating, Sam, as ever, and and, and lots of fronts to keep an eye on. But um, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much, Bill. Great to be here. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Samuel Remini. Sam is an associate fellow at Rusi. His book, titled Putin's War in Ukraine, will be published by Hearst and OUP and is due for release in December. Keep an eye out for it. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to more than 75,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Sam. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.